you could reach in a bag and pull so many things out that are impeachable of this president. Well, reach in that bag, Congresswoman. Please? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, they're everywhere. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Groves, Queso, and Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, not to mention your favorite podcast download sites. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. So um, remember all of those folks, uh, many of them self-proclaimed progressives who said that they were voting for Donald Trump back in 2016 because he would keep us out of foreign wars or that they were voting against Hillary Clinton because she'd continue to keep us involved in foreign wars. Well, I can I guess we can dispel with the uh, Trump keeping us out of foreign wars myth. At least at this point, it seems to me uh, on Tuesday night, the president vetoed a resolution that was passed by Congress by both houses, passed on a bipartisan basis, I should add, to end U.S. military assistance in Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. The veto is the second of Trump's presidency. It was expected and Congress reportedly lacks the votes to override it. But Congress passing the never before used war powers resolution was viewed as a milestone for congressional lawmakers, nonetheless, suggesting they have shown a renewed willingness to actually assert their war making and I guess war stopping authority. After letting that War Powers Act adopted by Congress back in 1973 basically atrophy for decades, ceding their constitutional powers to declare war over two presidents from both parties. 
Trump wrote in explaining his uh, veto on Tuesday night, quote, this resolution is an unnecessary, dangerous attempt to weaken my constitutional authorities. In <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. I did. Yes. That will, okay. That's what he said. Yep. Uh, endangering the lives of American citizens and brave service members both today and in the future. Of course, as you hear Desi Doyen laughing, yes. uh, it is no such thing. It is Congress uh, reasserting its own unitary right to declare or end wars. And it's Donald Trump's attempt to keep funneling money to his friends in Saudi Arabia. It's also decidedly the opposite of what Trump voters were told they would be getting from this lying president when they voted for him in the first place. But, you know, Hillary's a warmonger. Well, that might be true, but so is the guy who you elected president. Suckers. Many lawmakers in voting to cut off military money to the Saudis also criticized the president for not condemning Saudi Arabia for the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who lived here in the U.S. as a resident. Khashoggi went into the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul last October. He never came out. Well, he came out, I guess, but in pieces. Intelligence agencies said Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was complicit in that uh, horrific murder. The U.S. provides billions of dollars of arms to the Saudi-led coalition fighting against Iran-backed rebels in Yemen. Members of Congress have expressed concern about the thousands of civilians who have been killed in coalition airstrikes. Since the conflict began in 2014, those would be coalition airstrikes fueled by uh, our money, your money, taxpayer money. The fighting in the Arab world's poorest country of Yemen has also left millions suffering from food and medical care shortages and has pushed the country to the brink of famine, which we are exacerbating with our own military might even after Congress finally stepped up to do their job, their constitutional job. And yet Trump is still saying, no, I want more war, I want more civilian deaths, and I want more famine with no end in sight. But, you know, Hillary was the warmonger. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi issued a statement on Tuesday night saying, uh, quote, the conflict in Yemen is a horrific humanitarian crisis that challenges the conscience of the entire world. Yet the president has cynically chosen to contravene a bipartisan, bicameral vote of the Congress and perpetuate America's shameful involvement in this heartbreaking crisis, says Pelosi. She added this conflict must end now. The House of Representatives calls on the president to put peace before politics and work with us in advancing an enduring solution to end the crisis and save lives. Well, good luck with that, Nancy. Senator Kim, uh, Tim Kaine, a uh, Democrat of Virginia and Hillary Clinton's vice presidential running mate, said Trump's veto shows the world he is determined to keep aiding a Saudi-backed war that has killed thousands of civilians and pushed millions more to the brink of starvation. 
Kane said, I hope my colleagues will sh- will uh, show we won't tolerate the Trump administration's deference to Saudi Arabia at the expense of American security interests by voting to override this veto. Well, good luck with that, Tim. The top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, that would be Congressman Michael McCall of Texas, acknowledged the dire situation in Yemen for civilians, but spoke out in opposition to the measure back when it was passed. Uh, He said it was an abuse of the War Powers Resolution to, I guess, you know, actually use the War Powers Resolution for the reason that the War Powers Resolution was adopted. And uh, he predicted that it could disrupt U.S. security cooperation agreements with more than 100 countries. David Miliband, president of the International Rescue Committee, a humanitarian aid group, said, quote, this veto by President Trump is morally wrong and strategically wrongheaded. Well, don't say that, uh, Mr. Miliband. He'll just do it more. He said uh, it sets back the hopes for respite for the Yemeni people and leaving the U.S. upholding a failed strategy. Trump issued his first veto last month on legislation related to immigration and his declaration of a national emergency to steal military money to build his southern border wall. And where, once again, Donald Trump feels he can do whatever he likes, even if it only makes the situation worse, in this case, on the U.S. southern border. To that end, his attorney general also last night issued a new policy pronouncement, which, you guessed it, seems aimed at making things still worse on the border for everyone rather than better. Well, worse for everyone other than our out-of-control, completely unfit-to-serve president who is now running for re-election and seems to believe that chaos on the southern border and, uh, frankly, everywhere else is somehow his friend. We will be joined shortly by immigration attorney and policy expert Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute to explain what Trump's new attorney general is now doing for him Above and beyond obstructing Congress and the uh, public from seeing the full Mueller report, which will be released in some redacted form on Thursday. But until then, well, uh, shortly after we got off the air last night, news broke that prosecutors, federal prosecutors in Boston are expecting uh, expected to seek between four and ten months of jail time for actress Felicity Huffman who has pleaded guilty in connection with the college admissions scandal. Federal prosecutors, according to CBS, plan to recommend a jail term at the, quote, low end of the federal sentencing guidelines, which would be somewhere between four to ten months. Huffman, however, is arguing for a range of no uh, no jail time to six months in jail. The federal sentencing guidelines are discretionary, and it will be up to the judge to decide the sentence. Huffman was... As I'm sure you know, among 13 parents who pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit fraud, in her case having paid some $15,000 essentially to help her kid cheat on a test to get into a fancy university. Now, uh, full disclosure here. I, I know Felicity Huffman. I went to school with her. We used to call her Flicka. Yes, my friend Flicka and her uh, husband, actor Bill Macy. I know him as well. He is not charged for reasons that I don't completely understand here. Uh, he was a teacher of mine some years ago. I, uh, I like her. I like him. I haven't seen either of them for many years now, but I just wanted to offer that by way of full disclosure because I'm not arguing against 
Flicka going to jail for whatever she did here. Uh, in fact, some like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez complained today that Huffman is uh, getting off too leniently. Uh, maybe. I don't really have a position on it. I haven't really been following this case very closely, but I mention it by way of noting. Felicity Hoffman could be going to jail for uh, six to ten months for cheating to get her kid into college. And that might be fair. But the president of the United States, despite all of the many crimes he has carried out for years and now seemingly on a daily basis, including paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to shut women up to help him win the presidency as part of a campaign finance conspiracy that his fellow conspirators are going to jail for, that president is still running free. Uh, and 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 this is all before we even get to whatever we may learn from whatever Bill Barr is, you know, allows to uh, allows the public to see from the Mueller report. And don't forget, there's also that huge New York Times expose that just won a Pulitzer Prize for exposing the decades long tax fraud schemes that the Trump family has engaged in and on which Trump has built oh, his fortune. We only have an hour long show, Des. <laughs> we know, cannot right. begin listing all of the. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I was going to start with just the things we ha that has happened in just the past week, because something is very wrong with this system in this country. Very wrong. And there are a lot of folks to be held accountable for that. So let me start here. This, uh, as uh, media analyst Eric Bullert writes this week, purging the Department of Homeland Security, cheering the cover-up of the Mueller report while claiming federal prosecutors who investigated Russian collusion were themselves guilty of treason, defying a lawful order to turn over his taxes, ordering the Department of Justice to launch criminal investigations into his perceived enemies wishing he could unleash, quote, rough U.S. soldiers on women and children, uh, uh, seeking asylum here in America, promising pardons to border officials who break the law, aggressively subverting the independence of the Federal Reserve by nominating two obviously totally unqualified board members and inciting violence against a sitting member of Congress. That, writes Bullard, was Donald Trump's recent week. That was all just within the past week, as he clearly escalated his war on democracy and democratic institutions in America. Increasingly, though, it looks like the press simply is not equipped to deal with his radical and dangerous foray into, yes, authoritarianism. David Rothkoff, a uh, professor of international relations, tweeted, quote, this is how democracies die. The rule of law is slowly strangled. The unthinkable becomes commonplace. The illegal becomes accepted from violations of the emoluments clause to self-dealing to federal election law crimes to serial sexual abuse. Rothkoff says we are dying the death of a thousand cuts right now. This week, the president and his band of thugs are winning, he says. They have become unabashed in their attacks on the law. And the press, says Bullard, is playing a central role in this dangerous demise. It's been part of allowing the unthinkable to become commonplace. 
and last week provided many stark examples. Trump's brazen anti-democratic behavior becomes more pronounced as he appears to operate without the slightest concern of the press for holding him accountable. It seems the American news media doesn't understand or won't acknowledge what is happening and the dangers that democracy faces. They don't know much about covering authoritarian regimes or how to respond to them. And I should add, neither do I. But I am trying. I am trying. He adds, uh, they're too busy treating Trump's spectacle as a reality TV show. Well, that's something at least we try to avoid here for what it's worth. But the corporate media, particularly cable news, certainly does not. Bullard says that's the kind interpretation of what the press is doing. The unkind interpretation is that the press is simply too cowardly to confront Trump and hides behind phony newsroom guidelines in order to avoid telling the truth. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii uh, lamented last week on Twitter, quote, so many savvy Washington insiders and, quote, fair journalists are actually in on what he calls the con. They know one side is absolutely bonkers, but they are deeply personally attached to the fake objectivity that allows them to be blind to cruelty and racism manifested as public policy. Hey, Senator Schatz, I think there's still room to run for president if you're interested at this point. We discussed uh, just some of that cruelty and racism on yesterday's program regarding, uh, for example, the man whose wife was killed in Afghanistan as a U.S. Army soldier. This man was deported to Mexico last week, which left his 12-year-old U.S. citizen daughter parentless in Phoenix under Donald Trump's policies. And we also discussed the 11-year-old El Salvadorian girl that uh, is, is being deported without her family back to El Salvador despite seeking asylum here as gangs have been systematically killing her family members after one of them witnessed a gang murder and, and testified in court against the, uh, the murderer. Those kind of racist policies, uh, are, you know, are, are continuing. And yet the media still does not call them out for what they are. Back to Bullard here. He says at least one of the week's anti-democratic incursions clearly represented an impeachable offense. Trump ordered government officials to break the law and then promised pardons if they were prosecuted. Yet none of that sparked scandal coverage in the press, says Bullard. He cites Oliver Willis, who noted uh, one CNN reporter treated the lawbreaking as just more Trump news. She stressed, quote, he seems more intent on creating chaos and scoring political points, especially as he looks ahead to the 2020 re-election campaign and perhaps reanimate his base. Oh, this is all just part of that horse race, that political thing that's going yeah, on. That, well, that's what he says. He says reanimate his base, which, of course, we know cares very deeply about the border. So she just sloughed it off as if it was just, oh, this is something that happens in uh, campaigns. Bullard says breaking the law in order to animate your voting base is not a thing, or at least it should not be. 
But for Trump, there are no rules. Just look at the unfolding Mueller report cover-up and how Trump's attorney general is busy obfuscating for the White House and trying to create legal distractions. The fact that journalists, he says, have to wait until Thursday to finally see even a redacted version of perhaps the most important government report in decades ought to remain a source of embarrassment. Well, it does for all of us. It has been almost a month since that report was given to uh, Bill Barr, and yet we uh, have yet to see it. We're just hours away from that, I suppose, we are told. Uh, But Bullard says it also stands as testimony to Trump's ability to bully journalists and bend reality to his will. Note that uh, when the Trump administration refused to comply just last week with a lawful congressional demand that Trump turn over his tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee, the uh, after Trump became the first American president in nearly half a century not to make them available to the public, the press mostly played the refusal as a ho-hum, he said, he said, it's a partisan affair. That, despite the fact that Trump occupies a mental never-never land on the topic, says Bullard, quoting Trump's absurd claim that, quote, no, there is no law. Yes, that's when he said when asked about the statute supporting the congressional request for his tax returns. He said, quote, no, there is no law. Quote, there is no law whatsoever. But there is, Blanche, there is. <laughs> there is a very specific law on that. The Washington Post, he notes, buried uh, this quote in their final paragraph of a report on that showdown. The quote reads, Mark Everson, who served as the IRS commissioner under President George W. Bush, who, by the way, for his day was an unprecedented lawbreaker in the White House. But I guess he's a piker compared to this guy. Anyway, George W. Bush's IRS commissioner said there is no dispute that Congress, yes, has the authority to receive Trump's tax returns. That paragraph was all the way at the end of the article after they quoted Donald Trump saying, no, there's no law. There's no law whatsoever. When the president of the United States refuses to acknowledge the law of the land, that represents creeping authoritarianism, writes Bollert. I would say that's not creeping. I would say that is lurching authoritarianism. He says that when that happens, it ought to be the day's only news. Well, it's hard to disagree with Bullard here, except I wish to add that the Democratic Party, the Democrats in Congress are an aider and a better to all of this. It is not just the press. It is not just the media. It is also the Democrats, because, frankly, impeachment is the only thing They ought to be talking about as well at this point, and yet they are terrified to do so. Perhaps that's because the perhaps that's because the the uh, media is also seemingly uh, terrified to do so. But Democrats are, are terrified, despite the fact that, as I've said before, if you cannot impeach this president, then there is no president, at least no Republican president that will ever be impeached. And again, this is before whatever we may learn from whatever version of the Mueller report that Trump's AG allows us and the Congress to see. 
I just have to say this because it, I guess, apparently needs being said. This is absurd. And what's even more absurd is that everyone knows it. Everyone knows it's absurd. And everyone should be shouting this from the highest rooftops. I mean, that that list again, uh, Desi, we don't even need to go back to the years of tax fraud that you're referring to. We don't even need to go back to the campaign finance violations that Michael Cohen is going to jail for. The conspiracy in which his conspirator, the man who directed the conspiracy, was Donald Trump. We don't even need to go back to that. Just the past week alone, one impeachable offense after another. And everyone should be shouting this from the rooftops, from the media to the Democrats in Congress, who would ultimately be responsible for taking the actual action to impeach a sitting and wildly unpopular president. But they are cowards, those Democrats. Absolute cowards. Well, uh, maybe uh, a few of the newly elected freshman members are somewhat less cowardly, cowardish. Cowardice? Cowardly. There you go. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Sunday said she supports impeaching President Donald Trump in an interview on Yahoo News' Skullduggery podcast. Ocasio-Cortez was asked about uh, so many impeachable charges by this president. I, I think you could reach in a bag (laughs) <laughs> and pull so many things out that are impeachable of this president. I support impeaching this president. So she uh, supports that, uh, impeaching the president. That's good. Uh, it's not the first time she said as much. Last year, ahead of her uh, November election, she said she would support impeaching Trump. She said, we have the grounds to do it. And yes, we did, even back then. In March of this year, she said that she, quote, had been clear about how she would vote on an impeachment resolution, but that she would defer to party leadership regarding an actual impeachment vote. She said later in March that, quote, I think what's tough is impeachment is something that I openly support, but it's also just the reality of having votes in the Senate to pursue that. Well, whether they have the votes in the Senate uh, Senate, uh, or not seems to make little difference as far as what members of the House need to do as required under their constitutional responsibilities. Asked on Sunday about fellow uh, freshman uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan and her resolution to begin an impeachment proceeding, or at least investigation, which uh, which uh, was also released in late March, Ocasio-Cortez that said uh, said that while we hadn't signed on when it was first introduced, we probably will. Well, good. I hope so. Take your time, Congresswoman. Tlaib had famously said shortly after being sworn in as Congresswoman that uh, we're going to impeach the MFR, and in late March she introduced a resolution to begin doing just that. As for her top three of Trump's supposedly impeachable offenses, Ocasio-Cortez cited Trump's alleged violations of the Constitution's emoluments clause, tax fraud, and then the recent reports that Trump told Customs and Border Protection Commissioner, now acting DHS Secretary Kevin McAleenan, that he would pardon him if McAleenan was found to have broken the law on Trump's behalf. Trump has denied those reports. But as AOC said, it all comes down to money. 
If we had gotten something already from the Mueller report, then I would probably put that up there as number one, she said. But I feel like it's a little risky to put the entire grounds of impeachment to put all your eggs in that basket when I think that a lot of this stuff happens through backdoor bank accounts and stuff like that. An impeachment on emoluments clause grounds, uh, she says, would include any financial misconduct in relation to Russia. Well, maybe so. I'd say either way, it's time to get at it um, for elected members of the House of Representatives. But as we don't have a media or a Congress, at least not yet, with the courage to do what needs to be done, instead we are stuck with the continuing pain and suffering that it is being brought by this out-of-control administration whose new Attorney General Bill Barr announced his plan for still more pain and suffering at the border last night. We'll take a quick break and we will come back with that story next with Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Over the break, some breaking news. North Korea says it has test-fired a new type of tactical guided weapon with Kim Jong-un looking on, according to AP. Well, don't worry. We've got a, a man with a steady hand on the button here who's uh, able to respond to any such concerns. Why worry? we got an election next year. We'll just deal with Donald Trump then, right? 324 days. That's how long 10-year-old Ervin spent separated from his dad, Jose, after they were torn apart at the southern border under the Trump administration's barbaric zero-tolerance policy. Announced last year by then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions in May, resulting in months of chaos, horror, and heartbreak as children were ripped from their parents, held in cages, and as many of those children are still separated from their parents today. Nearly a year after their separation, the asylum seekers, 10-year-old Irvin and his father, Jose, were finally reunited last week in Arkansas after they originally came to the U.S. last May, fleeing threats against their lives in Guatemala. But in custody, federal immigration agents shoved papers at Jose and told him to sign them. He told CBS News, I explained I couldn't speak or read English. The papers were uh, agreeing to his own deportation and Irvin was left behind. Irvin's uh, family does not believe that he was mistreated while detained, though they said he has nightmares still. Irvin said each night he and other children said a prayer. Some would cry. 
According to Lee Gallant, an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, the big wild card out there is whether there may be thousands more who have been separated. The group successfully sued for the reunification of families last year and is pressing the judge in that case in Washington state to include what may still be thousands of other separated families. The government has remarkably asked for two years to just to identify those families, Gallant told CBS News. Before finally reuniting with his dad, Irvin told CBS that the first thing he would tell his dad is that he loves him. On Friday, he got a chance to do that, and both are now together as their asylum case continues to play out. Other children and parents are still waiting for that chance. Family separation, yes, remains a crisis. But that was the previous attorney general whose immigration pronouncements continue to wreak havoc. Now we have a new attorney general who is just beginning to issue his own pronouncements on border policy. The Trump administration on Tuesday night took another significant step to try and discourage migrants from seeking asylum, issuing an order that could keep thousands of them in jail indefinitely while they wait for a resolution of their asylum requests, according to The New York Times today. The order issued by Attorney General William Barr was an effort to deliver on Trump's promise to end the so-called catch-and-release policy used with migrants crossing the border in hopes of escaping persecution in their home countries. The order, which directs immigration judges to deny some migrants a chance to post bail at all, thus keeping them detained for potentially months or even years, is all but certain to be challenged in federal court, but immigrant rights lawyers said that it could undermine the basic rights of people seeking safety in the United States. Barr's order is the latest effort by the Trump administration to reduce the number of immigrants who are able to seek protection from violence, poverty, and gangs by asking for legal status in the United States. But so far... Those efforts have largely failed to stem the tide, even as it has slowed the processing of asylum requests at ports of entry and as it has ordered that some asylum seekers be required to wait in Mexico during the process. At a recent campaign rally, Donald Trump said that some asylum claims were a, quote, big fat con job and he went on to warn of a crackdown on border policies. Barr's pronouncement means that under the new policy, which is to take, uh, uh, to take effect in 90 days, detained asylum seekers who have already demonstrated to immigration officials that they have a credible fear of returning to their country will no longer be allowed to ask a judge to grant them bond. Though, Barr notes, the policy will not apply to asylum-seeking families or unaccompanied children at the border, at least for now, and only to those who do not enter the U.S. through legal ports of entry, at least as I understand it. Joining us now to help make sense of what seems, if I read it correctly, yet another cruel pronouncement of questionable efficacy here from yet another Trump attorney general is Sarah Pierce. She's an immigration attorney and policy analyst for the U.S. for U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Migration Policy Institute, a nonpartisan independent think tank dedicated to analysis of U.S. and global immigration. Sarah Pierce, welcome to the broadcast. 
Thank you for having me. So uh, before we get to some of the specific details of this newly announced uh, policy, why is it being enacted and uh, if it'll even work? Uh, those are some of the big questions I have. But before I even get there, can you help me understand the attorney general's seemingly unilateral authority here to make what seems to be a major change to U.S. immigration policy and enforcement and how it differs from what Republicans claimed to be furious about when the Obama administration was seemingly doing the same thing when it came to who would be granted asylum or not and who would be prosecuted and deported or not, etc. Sure. So this is a little known authority that the attorney general has, and it's left over from how we used to have an immigration system. Mm -hmm. So before we reorganized the government in the wake of 9-11, immigration was entirely housed in the Department of Justice. And as the attorney general was effectively the top immigration officer, he or she had the final say over immigration law, kind of a Supreme Court mm -hmm. <laughs> over immigration. So, you know, in the wake of 9-11, we reorganized the government. The De Department of Justice no longer houses the majority of our immigration system. That's now in the Department of Homeland Security. But the attorney general still holds this referral and review power. Um, but it's not used very much. Mm -hmm. So during the entirety of uh, the George W. Bush administration, they used it nine times. Mm -hmm. During the entirety of the Obama administration, they used it four times. But under President Trump, they've really seen this power as a way for them to shape the immigration system. So it's been used ten times so far. In, in just two years so far, just right. over two years. Exactly. Now, exactly. They've been very active. Now, Republicans claimed, uh, you know, for example, that the Obama policy of deferred deportation was unconstitutional or, or, or in violation of laws because he was doing that unilaterally. Now, whether that was or wasn't the case, are the various actions being taken now regarding immigration by this Im uh, administration any different in that regard as far as an administration taking unilateral action on policy, uh, which, as I said, seemed to enrage them so much when Obama was the one doing it. Is the Trump administration actually doing it in any different fashion in that regard? So looking at it through a legal lens, it's kind of hard to compare. Because mm -hmm. President Obama, you know, the executive actions he took related to deferred action were his own authority, the president's authority, um, through prosecutorial discretion. Mm -hmm. These, meanwhile, is this, you know, very specific authority of the attorney general that they're utilizing to, to put out these decisions. Um, so it's, it's, it's different, <laughs> or at least it falls into different categories, though I certainly expect this most recent decision from the attorney general to be challenged in court. So we'll definitely see whether it can uphold legal scrutiny. So what is the, uh, what is the key change here to, uh, to current policy that we're seeing in uh, uh, Bill Barr's new order, as you see it? So this order says that if you are an asylum seeker and you cross in between ports of entry you and ICE decides to detain you, mm -hmm. you are ineligible for a bond hearing before an immigration court judge. That rule already applied to asylum seekers who were applying at ports of entry. Mm -hmm. So now it's, it's more uniform. Anyone who's arriving in the United States who doesn't have papers to enter and who's trying to apply for asylum if ICE decides to detain them, they cannot get bond. What you're saying that the policy uh, already applies, that uh, people coming in through uh, regular old legal ports of entry uh, claiming asylum, that they are, they are not allowed uh, a bond hearing? That's right. 
So they're not allowed a bound hearing. They can be held indefinitely, and anyone else coming through a uh, non-legal port of entry also can now be held indefinitely. But this does not apply to families and uh, children traveling alone. Is that correct? That's right. I actually kind of think of there being three big exceptions to mm-hmm. this. So families are exempted under um, litigation that's occurred under the Flores Settlement um, families can only be detained for 20 days, so this doesn't really apply to them. Unaccompanied children, it doesn't apply to them under a 2008 law that says that we can't detain children for long periods of time. Um, but then also, anyone that ICE just decides not to detain, ICE is really strapped for resources, especially right now mm-hmm. facing you know, the crisis at the southern border. Uh, so ICE is not detaining a lot of individuals. They're using something called parole instead to allow them to come into the United States. So if ICE decides not to detain you, this rule won't apply to you as well. So uh, this this seems to me, at least from my reading, uh, well, is this an effort to push more folks through the already backlog ports of entry? If so, uh, if, if those folks were already being denied bond hearings, I'm not sure entirely that that will work, that it will change. Does it change the calculation as far as uh, how people may wish to come into the border or not? I know the administration has wanted people to come in through the ports of entry. Those are already wildly backlogged, as I understand it, with people waiting weeks to have their asylum claims processed, many now being forced to wait in Mexico. So will it actually change that equation at all as you see it? You're right, it won't. There's nothing about this will incentivize people to go to ports of entry. Um, they'll just continue how they're coming, and, and most are crossing in between ports of entry to apply for asylum. And so, ultimately, what I, I guess this will do, you say ICE's uh, uh, detention facilities are already full, they're already letting people go. Won't this make those facilities even more full? Where are the people supposed to go if they're not uh, allowed to release them? Uh, I I don't understand how this uh, even can work, even if it is uh, put in place in 90 days. Yeah, it it, it can't, (laughs) or at least it can't work very well. The attorney general, like you said, he did delay it 90 days to give ICE time to ramp up facilities. So I expect us to see ICE you know, trying to do that. Of course, they've only been appropriated so much money from Congress, so mm-hmm. they might have to do some sneaky things with money to try to um, increase their detention capacity. But they're not going to be able to detain everyone. We have a lot of arriving asylum seekers right now. So I expect them to try to implement this as best they can, but it won't be a full-scale implementation. So is this really just another, um, I I hate to be crass about this, but is this really just another uh, 2020 uh, campaign pronouncement trying to look tough on the border if ultimately it's not going to make any actual difference and we don't even have the facilities to detain the people that we are now uh, going to uh, be detaining indefinitely. I'm, I, I guess I keep coming back to the, what's the point of this? <laughs> right. Yeah, I definitely think we can add it to a long list of failed policies that this administration has tried to implement along the southern border to be harsh, mm-hmm. you know, including family separation, family detention, the asylum ban. They've tried to implement a series of, of you know, really harsh policies along mm-hmm. the southern border to detain us or deter asylum seekers from trying to come to the United States. Um, and they haven't been able to implement them for very long or, or not on the full scale. And this policy certainly seems to fall right in line with that.
pattern. There is a phrase which uh, Donald Trump and Fox News use, catch and release, which frankly uh, seems somewhat offensive and demeaning to me. But since it's something that Fox News has used for many years as if it was an outrageous idea, naturally Donald Trump uses it as well. He is similarly outraged by it. But is there a problem with our system of processing these asylum claims and allowing the applicants into the U.S. until their cases can be heard by an immigration judge? Is there actually a, a, a problem that needs to be solved uh, other than the numbers of, uh, of cases that need to be dealt with? Is there a problem with bringing them in, uh, you know, uh, determining whether they have a, a, a credible claim or not, and then releasing them into the U.S. until such time as uh, their case can be heard uh, by an immigration judge? I, I think the, the, the problem actually is with how long they wait mm-hmm. to have their asylum cases adjudicated. They frequently wait three, four, or even five years. And if you're talking about legitimate asylum seekers, that's a big problem because they're trying to set up lives in the United States, but they don't know what their future is. They don't know if they'll be permitted to stay here. And the evidence for their case is getting really outdated. But the way the system is set up, it does incentivize people with less than legitimate claims to try to come to the United States and claim asylum because they know they'll they'll be permitted to enter um, and at least stay for a temporary period of time. So the I think, you know, what the administration could do to really ad- address what's going on in a a proper and humane fashion would be just to shorten the amount of time these asylum seekers are waiting to have their claims adjudicated. Um, But we really haven't seen them make any sort of concentrated effort to resolve that big problem. And that's the big problem. That's sort of where I was going with that question, because isn't the real problem here just a lack of immigration judges? And wouldn't the money that Donald Trump is right now trying to steal from the military to build his wall under this uh, so-called national emergency declaration, wouldn't that money be better spent in hiring hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of new immigration judges so that these uh, cases can be processed much faster? That seems to be the rather simple solution, at least to uh, my simple understanding of this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Or at the Migration Policy Institute, we've also argued that USCIS, uh, our U.S. Immigration Agency, mm-hmm. they have a professional asylum corps that's, that's there adjudicating asylum, a different type of asylum claims. The administration could easily give all of these asylum cases to the USCIS Asylum Corps, and they could process them much faster than the immigration court ever could. There, you know, an adjudication before one asylum officer, it's less resource intensive, and it's also nicer for the asylum seeker. It's, it's not as adversarial as, or as intimidating as going before an immigration <laughs> court. So there, there are several options before the administration to try to resolve what's going on. Unfortunately, they seem to have the mindset that there are no legitimate asylum seekers and that they just want to limit this potential benefit as much as possible. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, you say it's much nicer for the asylum seeker. I guess that's one of the reasons they don't want to do it. But otherwise, I was going to say, if there is that uh, option, why aren't they doing it? Are they concerned that one agency will be more, uh, you know, uh, respectful of these concerns than the other agency that is currently uh, overseeing these claims? Yeah, that, that's likely a current concern of the administration. Mm-hmm. The USCIS Asylum Corps is the same group of individuals that actually conduct the preliminary interview at the southern border. Mm-hmm. And as we've heard from recent reports, the administration is thinking about taking it away from them and giving it instead to Border Patrol officers. So there does seem to be this level of suspicion with 
with our U.S. immigration agency and how they adjudicate asylum. Um, but, you know, like I said, this administration just doesn't seem that interested in resolving this systemic problem. Instead, they just want to deter asylum seekers from arriving at the southern border. They want to limit how many ultimately apply for asylum and then limit how many ultimately receive it. I've got uh, two quick questions uh, related here before I let you go. Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute. Um Last week, the administration announced that it was ending aid to programs meant to slow the flow of migrants coming up from Central America, from countries like Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and so forth. Uh, that idea seems both uh, ill-considered and simply counterproductive to their proclaimed efforts. If they want to slow the, uh, the the number of folks coming up here, it seems like helping to make things better in the home countries would do that. Am I missing something here? Is there some reason that it actually makes sense to cut off the aid to those non-governmental groups who are trying to help people in those countries and help them to stay at home? Yeah, you're right. It's kind of an odd retaliatory action that the government seems to be engaging in. Um, and. I think, you know, like you seem to recognize, the money doesn't actually go to the government. The money goes to projects that are happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't expect this. I mean, if this is going to have any effect on migration, if anything, it would increase the incentives people already have to leave their home countries. And, and then making things worse on the border, which uh, I guess the administration pretends they don't want to see. Maybe they do want to see it. I don't know. Sarah, taken together, the the family separation policy, the attempts to deny asylum claims uh, made on the basis of domestic abuse and gang violence, uh, forcing migrants to wait in shelters in Mexico and even reduce, re reducing the, the number of Perfectly legal immigrants who uh, are, are uh, you know, granted visas and green cards, et cetera. Is there? Uh, well, let me ask ask you this way, because I know you're a nonpartisan organization, but what is the problem that these policies are really meant to solve for this administration and its supporters, as you see it? I I do think that there is a political incentive for this president to just look like he's active on immigration, to, to show that he's engaged in the fight and, and you know, fighting for the, the policies that his base is interested in, and maybe less of an, a political interest in actually having results on the ground. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that's one incentive mm. of this administration, to just try to keep hammering in these harsh policies, whether or not they're actually going to stand up in court or be effective on the ground. Sarah Pierce, policy analyst and immigration attorney at the Migration Policy Institute, uh, a nonpartisan independent think tank dedicated to analysis of U.S. and global immigration. Sarah, I really appreciate you joining us today. I'm going to point folks uh, towards your website, migrationpolicy.org, and suggest that folks follow them on Twitter at Migration Policy and that they follow you as well on the Twitter's very helpful feed you have there at Sarah Pierce ESQ. Sarah, really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Brad. You bet. You know, I I, uh, I often talk about the difference between skepticism and cynicism uh, and the need to always be skeptical, which is helpful and important while trying to avoid 
cynicism, which uh, mostly is neither of those things. But and very it, not helpful. Yeah, it's it's hard to avoid, however, being cynical about all of this, I got to say. I mean, it, it, it seems these policies are not going to make anything better. Uh, will arguably make them worse, will cause more chaos at the border, and that, in fact, that works in Donald Trump's favor. So he can continue to declare that it's a nightmare, it's an emergency, it's all the Democrats' fault somehow, even though it's been Republicans over the past uh, decade or two who have prevented reform to our immigration policies over both the Obama and George W. Bush presidencies. And and uh, but now only uh, Donald Trump, the tough guy, uh, can possibly solve this emergency that, oh, yes, he's been warning everybody about for years and he has made even worse during his presidency. So chaos works to his advantage in uh, in many ways. And I would argue, uh, particularly at the border, as we move into an election year. Buckle up. Too cynical. All right. Quick break. And we're back with our closing minutes. Uh, on the broadcast and some thoughts in response to my commentary yesterday on uh, the rebuilding of Notre Dame. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Will you join in a crusade who will be strong and stand with me beyond the barricade? Is there Then join in the fight that will give you the right to be free. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? This is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the Welcome back. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Uh, welcome back. Uh, comment left at bradblog.com. From our friend Jim Soper, in response to our show yesterday, in which I had a word or two to say about the then $700 million, now $1 billion, uh, that was raised in less than 24 hours to rebuild the Notre Dame Cathedral, which came from just three billionaire families and a few French companies, including oil giant Total, in which, uh, as I noted, and you can download the whole show and my entire rant at bradblog.com for free, uh, I, I, I noted that I was happy to see that there will be money to rebuild the 850-year-old iconic cathedral in the heart of Paris, but that it is shameful that uh, just a few families, frankly, have that much spare money just lying around um, billions and billions and billions of dollars and that, in fact, the money that they gave was not all that much compared to how much they actually have. Um, and when it comes to the companies, for example, Total, uh, the oil and gas giant, which is causing climate change, uh, they couldn't, uh, you know, they, they couldn't put that kind of money where they think they put 113 million or so towards this effort. But they could not 
put any money towards the attempted gas tax increase last year in France that led to the yellow vest protests there, in part, uh, at least, uh, over what would have been a, a carbon tax of a sort to help curb climate change. That tax would have raised some $4.2 billion or about one third of totals total profit profit from last year alone. Um, so anyway, Jim Soper wrote in to say, Brad, thanks for your comments about the Notre Dame fire. I lived 11 years in France, including one year in Paris. Americans may have difficulty understanding the emotion around this building. It's not just a church or even a cathedral. It's a very historic symbol of a nation. Similar uh, would be the Acropolis or the Taj Mahal or the Hagia Sophia. That's the Greek Orthodox Christian cathedral turned Ottoman uh, imperial mosque, which is now a museum in Istanbul, uh, and some others. The U.S., he says, has nothing comparable. The closest we can get would be the Statue of Liberty, and that does not contain 850 years of history and fantastic art. Notre Dame is quite literally in the very heart of Paris and in the hearts of most French people, regardless of religious beliefs. The French billionaires the ones giving this uh, money, who came up with all of this money in about 12 hours, they will be getting a 60% tax break on their donations. I'm not going to begrudge them that, says Jim. I want to see Notre Dame rebuilt. But the question arises, where the hell are all these people when we have millions starving in Yemen and in Africa? I'm sure some of them make significant donations, but it is amazing to see more than 600 million euros pop up overnight. Keep up the good work. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Jim. Absolutely right, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that uh, note. You can contact me as well, either by leaving a comment like Jim did at bradblog.com or dropping me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also find, follow, and share everything we do on the Twitters, where I am simply the Brad Blog. My thanks to our producer today, Desi Doyen, to my guest, Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute, and for all of and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. Downloaded our download our shows anytime for free and share them with your friends and family at bradblog.com, where I and Desi will thank you for stopping by bradblog.com slash donate until oil and gas uh, giant total coughs up what they owe us for all the fine <laughs> press we give them every day. All right, that is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, wish us luck. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.